Hello and welcome to episode four of Talking Shit About with me, Elizabeth Whipperman, your host, here with my puppy, Martok, and Link, the dogs, who Link is sitting quietly, but Marty is chewing on a bone, and since she's occupied, we're just going to listen to that for a second in the background. It's for everybody's best interest. So, this episode has an amazing guest. All my guests are amazing, but this is the first guest also outside of my like personal social circle. This is one of my favorite artists of all time, specifically one of my favorite country artists of all time, Nick Shoulders. Um, I'll have links to all of his social media and such in the show description. And if you want to check out upcoming shows or just other work by him, just go ahead and click those linky links. You can also, if you wanted, click subscribe so you don't miss these episodes that come out the first Friday of every month. And then you could also give me a rating if you wanted. You could give me a good rating, which would make me feel good. Um, I mean, you can give me a negative rating, but I'll be crushed. I'll be honest. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and let us start talking some shit. All right, so I am here today with country musician Nick Shoulders. Nick, how you doing? Not so bad. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what you do? Sure. I am a uh, weird, warbly grandpa music singer from the hills of Arkansas. I was born, raised, bred, and buttered here in these, these hills, and uh, I draw weird cartoons and travel across the country singing uh, sort of anti-oligarchy country music yeah i was actually going to ask you who does your album artwork so you do that oh yeah yeah i'm actually an art school dropout i tried to do that right after high school when i went to denver and realized that that metro has more people than the whole state i'm from and quickly didn't do so well out there so i i have a slight art education but i'm uh mostly vernacular in music uh, my, my grandparents recorded gospel and country and stuff and i uh Grew up in the woods yelling, so I kind of ended up with with more of an art pedigree than anything, to be perfectly frank. Yeah, I'm going to do an episode about art school with a friend who went to um, whichever one is in Portland because she had such a terrible time. So, oh, it's the worst. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, from what I hear, it's not worth it. Uh, yeah, not much going. I, I could go into sort of the environmental factors around it, but... Uh, Boy, yeah, talk about a way to just sort of extort people who don't have other ways to get to school. Yeah, let's, man, that is like a whole nother episode. Um, (laughs) I mean, if you wanted to, I won't stop you, but. um... But Let's just say like the Heartland weirdos who were told like, hey, you really should go to college. It's your ticket out. Like you're weird. You're different here. You're not going to want to work at the Wendy's and stuff like please, for the love of God, travel somewhere and go to school. And then you send to these places and you're like, wait, this has 100% acceptance and it costs this much. And how much are y'all paying for this? And like, I got very lucky in a lot of the ways that like scholarships and stuff played into how I didn't end up with crippling debt. But all of my friends who were artists that 
you know, there's a slim percentage that did well, but by God, if most of them are just in debt and still working in service industry jobs, like, like most of us, you know, yeah. um, I, I consider myself in hospitality, so I totally get it. And I've, I've made about 10 dozen uh, buckets of ranch for ungrateful customers. So I totally get it. But like, yeah, the, the whole art school sell is, is a pretty raw deal. Did you go right after high school? Yeah, I, uh, I graduated. Well, basically, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do so hot in high school. I, I wasn't there a lot. And a very kind teacher, my very good art teacher is like, look, if you want to go to school, and it kind of seems like that's what you're, you're aiming towards, then this is what you need to do. And I went straight from a town of 45 ish thousand people to a metro of 2 million. And it for lack of a better word, kicked my ass. I got arrested and my lung collapsed in the first year. And I was just like, all right, can't do this no more. Shit. Yeah, what a way to like start adulthood. Um, yeah, 19. And then of course the housing market collapsed. So the bank failed and my parents' business went under and they almost lost their house. And so like all this is going on in the background. I was just like, what am I doing out here? Like, what is this place with like, yeah, yeah. You can get sushi in the grocery stores. I just, it was new for me. Yeah. Um, and being kind of working class is one of your themes in your music, which is why I like it so much. Um, and just kind of country music in general. Would you say that's kind of where it started? Sure. I, and I would even say that I think as a caveat, I would always be very quick to point out that I'm sort of disgraced middle class. My parents were like, tried very hard to own a small business and do all the things right. And, you know, they were inheritors of very modest generational wealth and still try to put it to good use and despite all that it all came crashing down around him and i've always been uh financially in the same realm as anybody else i know that is uh, having a hard time so i would say that like i consider myself a working musician and have seen uh really both sides of the coin um from a childhood where i didn't want for much but didn't ask for anything and uh then an adulthood that has required uh, a lot of a lot of resourcefulness to stay afloat. And uh, I think that that's really kind of the hallmark of our generation is that we're very resourceful and we're very, uh, we're very good at keeping afloat. And I, I admire that about us, but I also don't think it should be our reality, you know? Mm -hmm. So I say so a lot, um, <laughs> which fine. is why I do a lot of editing. Um, when did you start making music? I started really uh, copying sounds around me as a kid as like a uh, a means to stay uh, occupied as sort of a red state misfit um you know my dad was an ace whistler and i grew up in the woods so i started doing bird calls uh matching owls and stuff and i, I really later realized that like diaphragm flexing and the basics of singing uh, I learned from from <laughs> from learning nature call stuff. So I, I consider my music shit to almost have started like in the woods, to be perfectly frank. And I heard my parents sing or my grandparents singing gospel music and all that old warbly stuff. So I sort of was imprinted with all this, but my parents don't play music and that nobody was interested in giving me an instrument. Nobody put a guitar in my hand or anything like that. They're uh for lack of a better word, uh, they're, they're athletes. They were, uh, they were career athletes. So they, uh, they, they put me in sports, despite the fact that I had a bad back and it later turns out I got a spinal deformity. So I, you know, I, I was kind of pushed towards everything but music and I had all these aptitudes in it, but really nobody was there to point them out. So I didn't start really playing music until I was a teenager doing drums for metal bands and punk bands around Arkansas. We we're just playing moldy basements and all that stuff. And 
when I went out west to Denver, my lung collapsed and I got into playing banjo in the hospital. It was my first stringed instrument. And I realized like, wait, this is like the drummer of an old time string band. This is how you you play um, like the back beat behind this this fiddle music that I was getting drawn to this Ozark old time music. And as a, a late teenager, early 20s person, I was just completely emerged in, or in, in, immersed in that old uh local fiddle tradition and old banjo music and really the old ballad singing also that I realized was connected to the singing that I grew up around. So I, I didn't honestly dive into music and really decide to make it my life until my mid twenties. I'm 32 now. And like, you know, between arrest and probation and uh, financial calamity and my lung collapsing and all these dumb things that happened when I was an early, early twenties, late teen person, it's, uh, it's awesome that I kind of got out of Arkansas and did things because it, it doesn't really happen for people that kind of experience that many back-to-back -back, uh, bad things. But music, uh, music's way better than, like I said, making buckets of ranch for ungrateful people, I will say. Yeah, oh, I can like smell it. I used to make ranch at this like pizza place. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I like love ranch. I put it on fucking everything because I'm from Montana, but totally. yeah. Um, and it, as a, a further thing on just like, you know, country music being a working class uh, genre, you know, the, the days that, um, well, you know, Hank Williams had a spinal deformity. He didn't pull plows. Um, it, the, there's kind of a, a bizarre sort of attachment that we have, have created with, with the music that really stems from the 80s and on. But it's, it's a hard times music and hard times doesn't have to necessarily mean like you're clocking in in the factory. Like a lot of time, hard times happen in dish pits hard times happen parking cars hard times happen in high school classes that are you know teaching you the, the war of northern aggression and stuff like there you don't have to necessarily be uh crushed in the big machine of, of pulling a plow and digging ditches and riding your tractor to school i think that's marketing to be perfectly frank and so yeah I, as much as i do think country music is a, a working person's genre and always has been that because they're working it just as incidentally that they suffer more and I think that that's kind of like a hallmark of the music is suffering and not necessarily a class identity though that is part of it I like the hard times I am thinking of Dolly Parton now um <laughs> I guess yeah what are some artists that like really inspire you in country and like sort of embody what you think is I guess hard times music right on yeah well I mean really and truly I felt very alienated by country music when I was younger. Um, my grandparents, even if they were singing the Patsy Cline covers and the old gospel songs and whatnot, I didn't feel welcome in church. And I didn't feel welcome in sort of like this hyper patriotic, increasingly kind of violent um, culture that was getting associated with pop country. And even though I was getting blasted with all the Alan Jackson, you can imagine, you know, like I, I knew every word to all those songs. I was riding around in little Ford trucks on back roads, just like everyone else, like listening to this music. But I didn't necessarily feel welcome in it. It didn't feel like something that spoke to my experience. You know, my experience were endless wars and bank failures and, you know, just the things going wrong. And it in this party music, I wasn't hearing hearing that, you know, I wasn't living with a red solo cup. I couldn't drink on my 21st birthday because I was on probation for something I didn't do, you know? So like this whole notion of of the party time shit didn't speak to me. And I really like and when I was 18, 19, I found the Carter family. Uh that's when I really dug into those early recordings. And, you know, I'd heard Woody Guthrie and and kind of understood what his interpretation of the music and his political uh, affiliations did for it. But really in like 
sort of what Dolly said in an interview uh, on a, a podcast I like is that she is a feminist in action, not name. And though I don't necessarily agree with all of that, I do think that people like the Carter sisters, I'm sorry, they were cousins, weren't they? Oh, wait, no, were they sisters? I'm sorry. The Carters, either way, they really embody something where like by adaption, resourcefulness, and just being like strong women, they pushed through a really harsh paradigm. And um, either way, it's uh, it, it strikes me that like the older music, not necessarily just the Carters, but stuff peripheral to them, even early sort of string band blues, like the Mississippi Sheiks, that is more country than it is blues. Um, all of that music from the Southern canon of the 20s and 30s, that really all speaks to me. The Riley Puckett's, Jimmy Rogers, um, like I said, the Mississippi Sheiks, Tommy Johnson is another blues performer who yodeled. Um, uh, Lottie Kimbrough is an Arkansas guitar player, and she was, uh, you know, definitely in the country blues side of things. So there's there's all these peripheral performers that are the building blocks of country that I find way more important to understanding country music than what came afterwards. And a lot of that speaks to experience again. All right. So that was a rant. I'm sorry. No, no, that's what, that's what you're here for. I love it. Um, what about artists that you think embody the wrong aspects of country music or some of the unhealthy, ugly I guess things that yeah, are reflected in country. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. That's it. Well, I was just going to say, I think a helpful way to think about it, instead of maybe in terms of like right or wrong, which is something I've struggled with because I felt like it's wrong. You shouldn't think this way. Is that it's reactionary. You know, um, my neighbors and classmates and friends and family growing up all told tales of, you know, our farm got burned up and we didn't own any slaves. We weren't complicit in that war and our shit got destroyed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is sort of the overarching narrative of kind of the greater Appalachian reactive politics is sort of this foreign invader. It was the crown back in the British Isles and it's the federal government today in the South. And that narrative got extrapolated to like the greater white West. But really in terms of like people are fucking freaked out. And like the reason there's more guns per capita in most other states that exist in this country and Arkansas than anywhere else is because of that generational trauma. And as much as like there is a whole conversation around why that exists and why that war happened that's secondary, the reality is that people are fucking flipped out and they remain flipped out and they remain very armed and they remain very married to a view of the world that is reassuring and it, it helps them feel like they're not complicit to something bigger and meaner and worse than them because it, nothing's worse than being the oppressor to somebody's mind who like fears the crown and fears the flag and all that shit like that. So I would say that like where it starts going wrong in my mind is around World War II. And you have someone like Woody Guthrie who carves this machine has killed 11 fascists into his fiddle. And, you know, he, he means it very, very like viscerally in a way that I think people who are singing the stars and stripes on the radio and stuff, uh, that that's not how they felt about it. Or that wasn't the, there wasn't that necessarily like, righteous pan-racial working class solidarity undertone to it you know they, they were supporting a, a segregated army and a an america that they didn't feel should change and i really think you can see it manifest itself and finally come to a head in merle haggard and when he sings if you don't love it leave it and fight inside of me i think that you have sort of peripheral songs like kiss me goodbye uh uh, write me when I'm gone, goodbye my sweetheart, hello Vietnam. You know, there's plenty of that stuff, but Vietnam really ignited the culture war and created the world where like the rebel flag, which was sort of an obscure symbol of one regiment, of one army of sort of a tired fight that people were trying to forget, 
and weaponize it into a symbol of anti-civil rights sentiment, um, you have that those people are the ones that are, are flocking to the Merle Haggard's of the world. And Merle Haggard might have written Oki from Muskogee in a semi-ironic lens, but he sure didn't sing it that way. He sure profited from the other thing, and that was the association of white patriotism. So I think after Merle Haggard, you really see this kind of degeneration of outlaw country. Basically, from what I can understand, the law that they were being an outlaw from was smoking weed and drinking on Sunday or something. There's not really much revolutionary in the spirit there. But then you have people like Johnny Cash, who are pretty much literally advocating for land back and are challenging Richard Nixon in the White House. You know, it, for all of Cash's shortfalls, and there are, are many, uh, he, he had um, a sort of a foil to the Merle Haggard image. And like Merle Haggard's from California, which in this day and age is the fifth biggest economy on the planet. And when you measure someone's experience like Merle Haggard, who is saying, if you don't love it, leave it on a country song versus Johnny Cash, who grew up on a cotton farm in Arkansas, uh, essentially a communal cotton farm, also very interesting experience, the Dias uh, communal farm, if, if you wanted to look into that. But uh, either way, I think the, the, the experience speaks to the outcome. And because Johnny Cash said the things he did and had the experience he did, I'm not going to like try to dissuade people from believing that Merle Haggard had a hard life because I know he did and I know that Merle Haggard suffered. But the way that he suffered and the way that he projected that onto the world was so much less kind and so much less uh, embodying of the spirit of sort of, again, that pan-racial uh, working class solidarity that I respect so much about Cash's work, even if, again, it's fraught in some other regards. Uh, but all that to say is I, I see Merle Haggard as kind of the root of when this reactionary um, uh, sort of politically charged version of country music existed where suddenly it is no longer about um, us and them as in us people who understand a certain lifestyle and then them, everybody else and sort of the homogenized suburban mechanized urban world versus us, white patriots, versus them, everybody else. And that's where sort of the godless liberalism uh, that they are so challenged by and create such a sort of boogeyman in country music starts appearing in my mind, because I really can't find any concrete evidence of it before that, you know? Like Louis Armstrong and Jimmy Rogers recording music together sounds pretty wild compared to stories about George Jones getting drunk and riding KKK on Charlie Pride's car just to freak him out. I think, I read an article once or like saw a headline and then was gonna read it and then forgot to read it of um something about country music and its shift um after 9-11 um Ooh, that's a whole other one yeah 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 do you have thoughts on that well I was gonna say I think I got caught up in Vietnam because there is so much that is related to you know like how I pick apart my family's reaction to the civil rights movement and Vietnam and everything like that that is tied into history of country music but my lived experience, and I'm sure your lived experience, and a lot of the people listening is, of course, watching country music shift after 9-11, and that, whoo-hoo, boy, I mean, okay, here's here's a little personal anecdote, you know, me me in Arkansas, a, a second poorest state in the country by a lot of measures, and, you know, not very populated, all these, all these measures of, like, wow, it's maybe a bad idea in a public school, but, um, I sat in the back of the classroom in eighth grade, and it was not long after 9-11, and uh, my two friends that sat in the back were Muslim, and they didn't stand up for the pledge, and I thought, well, fuck yeah, I really appreciate the reasoning on this, I see all what's going on, we're, you know, we invaded Iraq last year, like, yes, I agree with this, I'm sitting down with them, and, you know, I got jumped for that, 
And that was by people who were listening to stuff on the radio that were telling them that I didn't believe in freedom, that I didn't believe in people's right to exercise free will. And of course, that's that's it couldn't be more opposite, you know, and that's that's what really is frustrating about the term freedom and how it's been weaponized. It's like if you want to talk about actually being free and exercising uh, the ability to be your own self, you know, that patriotism couldn't be further from freedom. And so I. I I felt very attacked, visually, uh, viscerally, violently attacked by the world that surrounded country music in that era. So I, I, I definitely know that I'm speaking to a lot of people's experience out there who, um, who had similar things. I know I'm not alone in this, but I definitely saw country music weaponized in a way in my lifetime that made me say like, fuck that. <laughs> like that's, I grew up with that. Like I, again, I, I've heard the evidence all to the contrary that says that this is for white patriots. Like this is, this is definitely not your music. And that has kind of been a, a, uh, really, I would say in the last six, seven years, been a, a life project of, of knowing that I had this generational, uh, uh, stake and place in the history of this music and, uh, and the exercising of this music and not being, able to just sort of sit back and watch a sort of people that are able to mine the culture um, half-acidly profit from it and then also people able to mine the sentiments of of my neighbors and friends and family for political and economic gain and to see sort of how people's emotions were abused for pop country's own furthering of of right-wing politics and so yeah long form answer yeah 9-11 changed shit and it got scary where were you on 9-11? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, don't make me think it. Uh, nah. yeah, ironically, band practice uh, for a school band. If, if my life turned out any other fucking weird way, of course, I would have been hitting a drum the day that the towers got hit. Yeah, I was in like second grade, like, what's happening? I have no idea. Like, my classmate well, just shit his pants, you know? Jesus. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is, like, I really, it, I wouldn't say that there's sort of a gradient that you can measure at this point because we're we're not doing this on a scale that we probably should but like you know what age you were when you saw three thousand people die on tv probably makes a difference and i was like you know an 11 12 year old i was very much aware but not kind of i wasn't hardened to the world enough to really get what that implicated so i yeah i would say it was a tender age to be sticking a tv in front of a class of kids and saying the rest of your life is going to change is literally what my history teacher said and then just hit the button so i you know <laughs> he didn't tell me also the genre of music my grandfather adored was also going to change but that's that's a whole other deal damn that was so good sorry just kind of trying to soak it all in no you're I, um, yeah, sorry, I'm, a, I'm a rapid fire like i said that's stump town is strong Love it. Yeah. No, I, when you're talking, I'm muting myself so I can like pound coffee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, are there okay. any artists you see like presently that are sort of um, doing work similar to yours in that um, sort of working with those original country hard times ideals of, um, you know, solidarity? Do you see other artists doing that? Yeah, and I'm real. I just gotta say, I'm really lucky to be kind of um, rooted in both this New Orleans, as I maybe unsolicitedly named, uh, un-Americana scene of all these very, very densely populated folks, and also the folks in Arkansas who are, again, like me, rooted in the genre <coughs> or the place in one way or another, 
and are willing to wade back into it and kind of like piece apart what's worth keeping. Um, so I, you know, I will say I made a, I made a playlist that's got um, a ton of the New Orleans folks on it. And it's just called Un-Americana Country-ish Music from New Orleans. And a lot of the folks on there, uh, you know, Chris Ackers, Sabine McCullough, Duff Thompson, um, you know, Sam Doors and the Deslons, Esther Rose, uh, the Lost Deans. There's just so many folks on there who just by existing and playing the music they do and the way that they do are kind of an offering a foil to Nashville. And I don't want to like pull my sword out to Nashville and like stick it in Nashville's face and say like, fuck you, wake up. Like this is all just a corporate grab bag. But I will say even just playing music <clears throat> in the genre or with the intent to distribute in kind of the Americana world without some kind of thirsty corporate altered uh, ulterior motive behind it, that it makes a huge difference. And so, you know, someone like Sabine, who's a very dear friend of mine who I've played drums for, you know, being a black woman playing what is the fundamentals of country music and rhythm and blues and stuff that's surrounding country music that is fundamental to it. You know, uh, people don't talk about swamp pop or any of the stuff that came out of South Louisiana that was essentially just, you know, swamp country that had Cajun and Creole influence. There's a ton of this music that it gets pushed aside and gets segregated essentially into blues or country. And again, if you listen to those early records in country, you're listening to white blues performers. And when you listen to black yodelers, you're listening to people that shared space and time and street corners together playing this music. And so when you have country sold as country music, it, you're taking it outside of the context of where it came from and where it came from was very diverse. And that's always where I come back to is like if country music is just for people from the country, why are there all the fake Southern accents? And you can't divorce the fact that a lot of the formative aspects of this music, what we call country music, is from a very specific place. And people from the country in the South aren't all white. So this whole cowboys around the campfire, like image of country music as being the sort of like prairie homespun uh, you know, quilters background is really kind of farcical and it, it comes from Hollywood. It's, it's an aspect of that. But a lot of performers are really seeking to exist outside of that. And, you know, Willie Carlisle and Dylan Earl from up here are both outspoken performers who are, are doing the same thing and they're neighbors and, and I consider them family of mine. And like, uh, God, I could really just go down the list, but you know, there's Tyler Childress is out there uh, making a record that is a diverse cast of players that are doing Southern string music as played in that sort of diverse cast and directly challenging history. And, you know, I, I really like, I, I would say that a lot of people have been outspoken for years and have been sort of on the underside of things uh, without any reward. And in fact, like a lot of personal risk uh, before Dolly and before Tyler um, came out and were public about this, but like, you know, when I was picking up steam on the internet last year, I, I had like 1300 followers on Instagram and it was just saying what I've always been saying. And suddenly I'm put in front of a bunch of people. So I, I haven't, I don't like to think that I've profited necessarily by being outspoken. I, I think that if anything, it, it has cost me a lot of people who I was hoping to reach because part of the mission of this music is to, um, to talk to people who are from a disparate ideology, who I have a lot in common with in upbringing and in the world that we're from and the language we speak. And I, I see them being abused by, by media and by people who's, who they trust. And so, yeah, as much as like, I do wanna make this accessible to everybody, I'm also trying to speak very like candidly and very pointedly to a group of people who I feel that we've lost connection with. And so, yeah, I will say that like, 
there's a ton of performers like Tyler who are, you know, from, from here and speaking to a certain experience. And then there's also, you know, performers from the New Orleans canon who are really challenging sort of the boundaries of the genre and our historical perception of the genre. So long form answer, I couldn't tell you, there's so many of my friends that I just adore that are making such good music right now. And I, I would just say, start diving in, um, you know, that there, there's everything from, uh, from what I just mentioned to uh, like my friend Pink Williams on TikTok, who's just making like the most raunchy out there, like completely, uh, um, you, you know, Memphis brazen uh, stuff you could possibly imagine that's like anti-racist and anti-authoritarian and, and it's all based in his love of country music. So, I mean, there's, there's just so much out there and I really, I, I couldn't, I couldn't narrow it down to, to, to just that playlist, but I will say if you want to start somewhere, <laughs> that does it. Hell yeah. I, yeah, no, it's, I love letting people know that there is quote unquote good country out there as in like, you know, you meet people and you're like, Oh, what kind of music do you like? And they're like, Oh, everything except for hip hop and country. And I'm like, like, you're not going to like an entire genre of music, like at all. Um, well, and there's a whole conversation there because like, you know, the people who made hip hop outside of the South and, and whatnot are, are descended from people who largely fled slavery and fled the repercussions of Jim Crow. And so to, to say that like, I like everything but country and rap really kind of speaks to like, you don't like a certain geographic origin, which maybe means you don't like poverty or something you know it's really hard for me to parse that apart without having some kind of like grim some grim applications to that to that notion because trust me a lot of well-meaning people have said that but that has come up so much recently where I'm talking to people at shows or afterwards and like they'll say like I, I'm glad to see these folks here but like I feel like some of them would have put I don't like rap metal and country in my in their profile and at least we have them around now but like yeah, that, that, that association, like what do country and rap have in common? Well, according to algorithms, they repeat uh, the least amount of words and they happen to have a geographic origin and really harsh history of colonization and enslavement surrounding them. So like people saying y'all on the West Coast is largely due to Southern displacement and tragedy. And I think that, uh, that like, I'm glad to, to know that, that it's, it's getting adopted and that people are like sick, y'all's gender neutral. I'm glad people are using it. I'm so fucking into that, but it still has these sort of like, these moments where I'm like, we really could have used you in 2004 when you were laughing at Bill Mayer, uh, you know? <laughs> it's like, it, 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 it feels, we were, um, we were largely cast in a, in a type of way. And I think that's part of why we have the alt-right and a, part of why we have Trumpism is that reaction to feeling alienated and feeling made to, to look stupid and to look, uh, to look unworthy. Um, and, and I think that's a really unfortunate, terrible reaction, obviously, and not to be justified, but like a lot of people went the wrong direction because they were having a very bad day, not because they made a willful choice towards malicious political alliances, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, that's, I gotta... that's, big, that's some big picture shit. Sorry. No, no, you're good. I was just holding back a burp because I wasn't muted. Um, <laughs> just chugged <laughs> a bunch of coffee. <laughs> no, totally <right. laughs> Um, do you? I know. So the first album of yours I listened to is OK Crawdad, and you've got Bound and Determined on there. Um, which I think is there's some good lyrics in there about you know. Um, if you're country, you know, do you care about your land? Do you care about the air? Um, but I'm curious if you have 
still listeners who maybe um I'm trying to think of the right words maybe like lean more right than like your lyrics might suggest one would yes and it is like I mentioned kind of part of the mission to I I would hate to use the term Trojan horse in the sense that I'm trying to dupe somebody but it, it is presenting a familiar media form to somebody and then having them enter that and trust it and then have their um, their assertions really uh, challenged. And often, I wouldn't say that often, I will kind of be panning an audience in, in a town, wherever we are, and I'll spot just by various sort of aesthetic markers, people who I suspect maybe have just heard Snakes and Waterfalls on YouTube and we're like, cool, we'll go see that guy. And now they're in the room hearing me say that I hate governments founded by rich people. And as such, the Confederacy is the worst thing that ever fucking happened to Arkansas. And so when, when you get that opportunity to really not cast like a us and them thing, but like, hey, we're all in the same room. And here is a point of view you're not going to get anywhere else. Because trust me, up these back callers where I'm from, there's no public radio station. You know, there's no... There's no uh, point of view to challenge uh, what people are, are, are leaning towards and what they're hearing and the very digestible and available media that's, that's there for them. And so, yeah, I, I do get people where, where that happens, but I, outweighing that sort of tense situation, I get dozens more who will tell me, and this, this stuff literally makes me just want to like well up, trust me, that, that they their lives change because of some of these songs and that they're challenging people in their family and in their community for the first time because of them. And that is such an incredible responsibility because, you know, I, I have changed over time. I didn't come out of the, I didn't you know, just get born into the world with this attitude. It's been hammered in me by years of observing inequality and observing failures. And that applies to both ends of the political spectrum. And I think that like when you can speak to, um, to people on, on a level that's humane and not again, sort of casting like, hey, you're wrong and I'm right, that that can be powerful. And I don't, I don't wield this tool lightly or like feel um, any sort of levity to the, like the thing that isn't, isn't, very, isn't very real. Like I, I, I really do feel like this music is a mission to me and it's not just yodels. And so when people express those sorts of things to me, it's very, very important. And again, exposing people to this sort of thing is very, very important. And maybe most frustratingly, and maybe most importantly, at the end of the day, some people will listen to OK Crawdad, skip track nine and the last song, and they will be perfectly content to ignore that and remain with their political opinions still formed and unchallenged. And this is, a, it's an entertainment forum. At the end of the day, I, I am not an organizer. I'm not a born activist. I'm not a, um, a lifetime uh, politically oriented person trying to change hearts and minds because it's my like God-given mission. I, I feel indebted to people who are owed more than, than the political reality they're faced with. And so, yeah, I, the outspokenness, even if it can put me in situations where I'm like, I know this dude wants to hit me in the stomach, but he's still going to like ask for a picture with me like I don't that that's a lot of responsibility so to answer your question yeah I get put in front of people who have shirts that say like if this flag offends you fuck you and I will never pull a punch I, I always say what I'm gonna say 
And if they want to fucking hit me over it, they might, but it hasn't happened yet. We'll see. Yeah, not yet. Uh, I saw Sturgill Simpson in Missoula, where I used to live um, on election night in 2016. Um, and Missoula wow. is kind of like the blue dot in a red state. And so, yeah, we're at this country show in this huge venue, and it's just totally packed. It was sold out. And there is this tension and because you're yeah you're just like oh because we had all the left like like the lefty you know punk buddies who are like just happened to be into Sturgill Simpson um and yeah just everybody who had come from out of town to see him and god bless him he's up there and he goes we're not gonna talk about anything I'm literally just gonna play music and that's all he did was just like you just go off in these like amazing riffs and just yeah, it was just hours of like nonstop music and it was fantastic. And then afterwards, everybody went to the bars and, you know, watched the results, which was its own episode, I'm sure. But yeah, it was nice to have just because he could have taken a moment to be like, you know, fuck Trump or whatever and escalate the situation. But sometimes you don't need to do that. You can just exist right and, yeah. and that's the thing it, it and it's something that i have heard in the conversation about dolly's reaction to black lives matter and with sturgill and all of that and also i just will say it's a very trippy conversation to be like in an interview discussing sturgill simpson's music sort of in the same like realm of like hey we're making music went on that night i was living in my van and we were so sick we had to busk on the corner of fayetteville for like 20 bucks increments to cross the country and get back to California where I was living out of like a weird shed and trimming weed for a living. You know, it's like reality has done fucking changed on me, but um, I, I will say that like having grace for when people just need to be reassured is kind of a true sign of someone I think that has endured to an extent. Um, because like, it's very easy to sort of demand of your audience at all times, like this threshold of attentiveness and whatnot. But you know, like I, as much as I say, I don't pull any punches for the guys and the, this shirt offends you, fuck you thing or whatever. I do, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a company man and my company is getting people to be together who don't normally get to be in the same room. And uh, I, I, I will speak to a room to a certain extent. Like if there's a night where it would, you put me in a certain amount of in danger, you know, maybe I won't play bound and determined, but I will say everything around it. And I will, I will speak the, the sort of like tenets of what being anti-authority and being anti-racist, anti-oligarchical, like what, what makes up those things around sort of the central issue that those people can all agree with. And that's, that's really, I think the problem here is that, you know, a lot of these folks who maybe are hardcore um, against this this sort of general political world that I, I lean towards, um, I see how they live. You know, I, I see these like leaky roofed mountain shacks. I see these fucked up trailers, you know, like no, again, nobody's making these decisions from like a place of security and goodwill. Like they're frightened and they're being offered some very troublesome, easy answers to a complicated world. And so, yeah, I have a lot of grace for these people. I have a lot of understanding for where they're coming from and so there are nights where if i were if i were sturgill i i don't know i think i would have said something but i don't know what it would be 
And I can't possibly put myself in that, that place because that's way more people than I've ever played for or maybe ever will. But like that, just, just knowing that, that he acknowledged the reality as being kind of grim for everybody there enough so that he was like, hey, this would fuck us all up if I took a stance right now. We're all tense. We're all having a hard time. I'm just playing music. I, I see that and I think that's kind of rad. Even though parts of me are screaming one way or the other like that, I see the value in that. And I totally get it. Yeah, it's like finding the line between, yeah, taking a stand and action versus, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Just, no, yeah, I guess just knowing when it's appropriate. And Like, do you want them around? Like, is the point of your activism to garner change in people include more or is it to get them packing and to like assert yourself you know mm -hmm. like are you centered in it or is it about them and that is a push and pull that nobody is like purely centered in you know there are aspects I'm sure I could like uh, parse apart about messaging or things I've done where I'm like well that you know fuck I was that wasn't about who I was trying to reach etc but like really and truly I think a lot of people who can afford not have to look somebody in the eye and shake their hand who they don't agree with tend to be the most consistently outspoken and maybe that's a little bit of my experience but I, I would like to think there's another side where people who are kind of overexposed have to say something by by compulsion and um I just know that I'm not alone in that and that's that's very like comforting you know yeah, that is one of the reasons why I'm excited we're having this conversation. And you had that thread um, that spoke to me shortly after the insurrection um, to, and I hate using platitudes and bridging the gap, but like, if I was gonna use an example of what that looks like, that's what that was. And I, yeah, I grew up in a very Republican family. We grew up in Montana. And there's like a photo of me in the public newspaper in a public newspaper, the local newspaper. And um, I was in like first grade at the time and I'm like holding up an American flag and it's like radical young Republican, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then there's a photo of me like meeting George Bush and it's fucking hilarious. I have it hanging up. Um, That's amazing. On my bathroom door. Yeah. And, but I think like you, I always felt kind of something just didn't feel right in the things that like you know i'm being told to be nice and you know you don't hurt others but then some of the things i was seeing in my family and from you know their beliefs were hurting people or you know being racist which is something i you know was like probably shouldn't do that <laughs> um but i also had the benefit of living overseas and getting all these experiences so having to see both sides is i don't know it's been really helpful but yeah it is also a hindrance too because it's like okay you know sometimes i do need to draw the line and be like no this is not okay right. um yeah so that's that can definitely be a challenge well and, and i think what you're saying and or what i'm hearing at least and what what sticking out to me is the the part about like leaving and being exposed to information on really both fronts is a privilege um mm -hmm. as much as uh, economics geography race class all those things figure into dynamics of privilege one that i don't see talked about and really is um salient for me and a lot of people who grew up in 
for lack of a better word, shithole towns is wanting to see the, the idea that like, again, if you're up a certain hauler, you don't get that public radio station, like access to information and people's political allegiances are completely based on the, the information they're given. They're given, they're making decisions based on bad information, on bad intel. You know, I, I, I was so fortunate to kind of have the exposures that I did, but, you know, most importantly, living out of state did wonders for me. And even, you know, like just getting to, to travel as a teenager and go to Denver, as much as that kicked my ass, that completely changed my life and like made me think of things about differently. But it also saw, made me see um, a type of suburban white reactionary whiteness or like, you know, a type of whiteness that was an economic identity with like suburban um, insulation in these uh, very vast, rich Western cities and on the East Coast to an extent also. But what I really was seeing is that sort of the rise of what made Trumpism popular or popular and possible in terms of uh, election results wasn't the people up the holler flying the fuck Biden flag with the leaky roof cabin. You know, it was coming from these places where they were experiencing the very acute failures of liberal governments. Um, and of these left-leaning neoliberal capitalist uh, state governments and assemblies that were really failing badly. And where it was the veneer of leftism uh, to accomplish elective means, but while really just providing similar corporate protectionism that you would find in red state interior places. So I, I see and was not able to comprehend why people could be so angry until you could go to a place like rural Oregon that's on fire and be like, oh yeah, your lives suck and you have Portland to compare to. Maybe if I was in this vacuum of information, if I were fed the things you're fed, not to quote my own fucking song, but like if I had that as my only foil to my experience, I would, I could see myself being guided towards this. I understand where you're coming from, you know? So like, I, I think that the traveling speaks to both ends of things. Like if you are someone from uh, the Bay Area who's really only experienced the failures of liberal government and is nothing but critical of sort of party politics on that end, it's really hard to kind of see eye to eye with somebody, for example, who is perhaps from native reservation land who's completely failed by all aspects of the state and really like believe strongly in like status communism or something. So like there are all these frac fraction lines within uh, or friction lines and, and just riffs on what is collectively we're calling the left that I find bridgeable, but I wouldn't have known about until I traveled. And I think that that's true of so many people, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think people like to believe that or say that, you know, oh, it's the age of the internet. So everyone has access to this information. And so therefore, you know, everyone should quote unquote, know better than to believe X, Y, Z. But we know that there's like algorithms and when you are on social media you're stuck in those echo chambers so even still people in rural areas they still aren't necessarily as connected as we think they are um, they're very dis yeah and i will say there's a podcast episode out there and i'm, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of it but it was fascinating that somebody just liked pretty much everything they were given on Facebook as an experiment. They're just like, what, what's the elder I'm going to do if I just kind of like everything arbitrarily, like a granny would do, you know? Mm -hmm. And it guided this person almost immediately into hardcore right-wing propaganda. And they're like, whoa, what the fuck? 
let's try this again. And so they like repeated this experiment over and over again, trying to like make it make sense of why is the algorithm just pushing me straight to the right if I sort of arbitrarily use the information on this platform. And it's because that there's a whole suite of human emotions that are going into these algorithms that we don't understand that are, are being fed back to us. And uh, fear is a potent emotion. And it, you know, I, I think like you and a lot of people, we thought democratizing information was, was going to change the world for the better. And I still do think that that is like the long-term trend of the internet and of having this sort of access. But in the near term, it turns out that pretty much anyone who believes anything can find someone out there telling them they're right. And that sort of level of scaled up confirmation bias is causing the fall of representative democracy globally. And I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> like, that's just what happened. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think it was someone I, I heard in an article quoted is like, yeah, we had Facebook in the Philippines for two years and almost caused the collapse of our, our government. And that's, it's happened everywhere. And I, I really can't, can't say enough how much I think that like the, <laughs> the sort of uh, Ivy League dorm uh, teenage boy mentality that went into structuring Facebook was obviously not meant for world stage geopolitical interactions. And uh, we're just reaping the consequences of that shit forever. I'm going to get off in the weeds on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Facebook. God. Yeah. Just the algorithm thing is horrifying. Absolutely. I was just had this like 50 yard stare while you were talking about it. Just thinking of all the terrible things my grandpa has like shared on Facebook I have it set so he can't see anything I post anymore not my cool grandpa my cool grandpa can yeah just Jesus that is really interesting well it happened to me just as a personal anecdote this, this doesn't have to make it necessarily on the show but it is interesting I I signed up for TikTok to 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 do the whole thing and I put some like turkey calls and uh, banjo things on there and whatnot and I got a I got a quick quick pickup on following as I was kind of hoping like I think anybody who's in music who's not of TikTok generation who's like wading into it is going to do and um I like have the personalized feed or whatever right so I didn't really follow many people back but based on who was following me all of a sudden I was getting hardcore racist TikTok shit Jesus. like immediately and I was like whoa what the fuck how did, I didn't earn this. So I like immediately just kind of like tried to find accounts that to, to follow that would kind of steer me out of that. And I was just like, Jesus H Christ, how did the algorithm think to do that? And then of course I'm like, well, I did a barred owl call. And as much as I wish it were different because I grew up, you know, definitely like going to the duck blinds here and there, uh, like the hunting crowd pushed my algorithm towards some really scary, scary stuff. And it made me think like, you know, I had instant checks on my information or my media literacy where I was like, this is setting off all these red flags. This is racist. What am I seeing? Whereas I could just imagine a world where somebody's a little more impressionable and a little younger and not in the same media sphere as me would be totally manipulated by that information. And it scared the fuck out of me. And I know it's happening left and right, as in like all over the place, not politically. But um, yeah, it's it's uh, troubling stuff. God, I'm so glad I don't have children because, like, I don't know if I could, because, like, I wouldn't want to ban them from the internet because that doesn't feel right. But also yeah, just, like, yeah. what a fucking terrible place. Like, oh, my God. Well, and I think <laughs> of my time on the internet, the dark 2003, four days where I first started downloading music. And 
I have all these things saved probably still in this iTunes library on this laptop I'm speaking into right now that are mislabeled. I have like Hank Williams labeled as Lefty Frizzell or, you know, Red Red Wine labeled as Bob Marley or all these other things. And that's so minor. But the butterfly effect of that is that when I still hear that Red Red Wine song, my brain goes Bob Marley, you know, and like that's that is we're coming up on 10 years from those days and the sort of like early meme culture in my space world that I entered but like I remember talking to somebody on the internet and arguing my first internet argument with was some girl who said that Hurricane Katrina was an act of God and because they were sinners and gays in New Orleans and I was so infuriated so utterly infuriated and I just like typed pages to this person and then it took a little time and I looked into it and was like wait this is like a trolling account like this is somebody that put up a bunch of fake funny photos and they're just like an asshole contrarily on the internet left and right and I was like I, I was so befuddled by that and now I feel like that's my daily experience and everybody's daily experience yeah there's this idea that um people's social circles in theory should be about a hundred not should be but like to have a healthy relationships is about a hundred people so when you bring in social media you are whether you are consciously doing it or not, you're worrying about the opinions of, you know, th however many follow, how many followers do you got? A few thousand? Uh, I mean, the on the Instagram, crawled Instagram, it's like 28,000. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a lot of pressure. That's an intense sure. fucking amount of pressure. Yeah, it's just not how our brains are wired, you know? Well, and I have kind of a wing nutty empirical theory of anthropology that ties into that statistics. I've heard that before, and I think that's a really cool idea that you should have about 100 to 200 people that you can truly care about. And I think that where maybe political and social lines really fundamentally get drawn from like a, a position of, of predisposition and not necessarily like, oh yeah, there's rise of authoritarianism because the world's in chaos, et cetera. Like where people are sort of physically, pathologically, mentally conservative or more curious, uh, I think falls into kind of that one to 200 people line because I, I really feel like an element of humanity, especially an overeducated, um, overexposed sort of cosmopolitan uh, transient element of humanity can see one those one or 200 people as including people in other countries they'll never meet, their great, great, great grandchildren. Um, you know, oppressed communities on continents that they've never been, uh, that empathy can be extract or abstracted to a point that uh, it can apply to people that aren't physically present in their life. And I don't think that that's like physically impossible for the more tri tribally minded amongst us, but I do feel like there is an element of our population that's predisposed to be, um, to be ambivalent or cautious or sometimes even uh, frightened of outside stimuli. And it's not in my mind, like an act of ignorance or malice, it has to do with this idea of, of abstracted empathy. Like, can, can you think of this in terms of how it could be mutually beneficial and satisfy curiosity as opposed to be a, an affront to your values and your identity? Because that seems to be really part of the problem, huh? <laughs> so so that, that's, that's my kind of wing nutty thing that ties into what you're talking about there. I don't think that's wing nutty at all. Thank you. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Um, so what are some things, this is kind of like my like kind of like final wrap up question for you. 
I'm unless you want to keep going also I could do this all dang day um but uh I guess what are some things you would like to see improve within the sort of country music scene genre just like sort of general attitudes or actions you'd like to see happen Ooh, you know, I, this is something that I have sort of thought about because I, I have had a few people tell me that they feel equipped to kind of go forward with things that they were challenged by or scared to do before. And now they're like, you know, I, I have seen an example of somebody kind of brazenly, fearlessly doing this. And now I'm, I'm ready. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. This was not brazen or fearless. Like this has all been very complicated. And there are people that I love that won't talk to me because I have spoken up, et cetera, et cetera. So like, you know, there, there's an element of that, but I guess what I would like to not see is, and, I, and this is not from any point of hubris, but more that I think it would be unproductive because I've learned stuff in the last year and a half, but I would like to see kind of a more nuanced forward version of maybe things that I've been saying and wanting to happen and not, not what I've been saying and wanted to happen, if that makes any sense. I don't, I don't think there should be a continuation or like clones or more versions of me speaking up other like white men of inheritance from the cotton empire who had warbling grandparents who gave them fiddles, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I don't necessarily think that like there needs to be every one of me suddenly has to become like affiliated with, uh, you know, uh, anarcho-adjacent politics. I think more truly what would be change and what would be like actual actionable change would be if people's material conditions and lives got better. And I think that would be helped by the mechanics of the music kind of moving along. And I don't want to like point any fingers or like talk down on anybody's playing, but like when I hear people say stuff like it's country to play country music again, I'm like, what the fuck happened to this music where it got so divorced from the 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 foundational genres that created what we call country because again you know there were hillbilly and race records in the 20s and 30s and that was essentially you know everything that people who weren't white were making and then white string band music and there was because of that segregation in the market there's still this lasting impression of of it being different worlds and despite yes there are legal and um quantifiable like societal or societal divisions there like really and truly those came from the same world and the same experience and so what what i see in that early music is it was dance music you know it was participatory this was music where people got together on it and like what i enjoyed about mosh pits and getting knocked around with my friends playing metal and punk music is the exact same stuff that I enjoyed in country music and getting to dance with my friends. So I don't necessarily want every, every country singer like me to suddenly take up arms against authoritarianism. Rather, I feel like if the genre itself lent itself to like being organically enjoyable, people didn't go to an Americana or bluegrass show to cross their arms and drink IPAs, but to like dance and talk and and learn things and interact like I think if that were true of country music and were true of vernacular music forms that it would materially improve people's lives they'd have more fun with the music it wouldn't be a big marketing scheme to whose felt hat looks the best and which vintage truck with which sepia filter you know like I'm so fucking disinterested in that world so fundamentally disinterested in that 
and so much more interested in the sweaty, moldy honky-tonks that I played in in New Orleans and Arkansas where people were having the time of their lives. And that was where the music felt real and felt tangible and felt worth it. So if anything, I'd like to see country music get shit together by being just fun and by and i'm not talking about like we drive down the road like no problems fun i'm talking like ah, i i can't even nail it down i think I, I think i've said about as much as i can of that without getting me but yeah i just i really wish that uh there were ways to make people's interactions with the music more enjoyable because i think that would make it more accessible more than just being like hey we don't like cops or whatever like that's that's fine. I agree. But like, that's not going to bring people to the table. What's going to bring people to the table is if you're having a good time, you know? Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. That was perfect. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, well, shit. Um, was there, I'll let you plug all your music and stuff, but is there anything else you wanted to throw in or talk about? Well, more just that I mentioned a lot of this stuff in an article that I wrote for In These Times called uh, Fake Twang, How White Conservatism Stole Country Music. And I have a my only uh, web graphic I've ever put together, um, which I drew also, which is on my Instagram and Facebook. And it's just called Why Country Music Deserves a Social Conscience. And uh, they are both what I would consider dated after having kind of experienced more of a uh, collapsing world and trying to sing generationally inspired uh, vernacular country music. But I will say I'm, I'm still proud of a lot of the content in there and my fundamental views haven't changed. So if you want to check those out, uh, it's definitely something worth, worth plugging on my end, I guess. I will have links to everything in the show description. What? So you're on Facebook or are you Facebook, Instagram? Most active on Instagram. I'm on the TikToks if you're doing that, doing bird calls every once in a while. But Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, uh, all the Apple music uh, programs, whatnot. Basically, anywhere you can download music on the internet, I'm, I'm there. All over the YouTubes. Hell yeah. Shit, Nick. Thank you so much for coming on this show and talking. Like, as a fan. Like, <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. And... I don't know. You're very genuine. It's this is such like a good conversation. I the only reason why I'm like gotta go is because like we got a puppy and I feel bad making my partner take care of her. For no, that's that's but... totally true. <laughs> as as a as a like a fan of every single person that's reached out to be like, hey, this music speaks to me, and I'm like wanting to talk. I just want to say like, yeah, it means a, a fucking ton to have anybody else that like is on team and feels the same reaching out. So I, I really like genuinely appreciate it.